At this time, I was just thinking about thermals, centering, and route progress. Well, it happened that such sack took me over a swamp, and here is when I learned that conditions can change fast. So I went from being confident and at ease to survival mode in a few minutes. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Hey, it's great to have you back with us today here on the podcast. We have another exciting soaring adventure, and joining us to tell her story is Adriana Berrigan. Born in Guadalajara, Mexico, Adriana grew her passion for life, beauty, science, and freedom. During her childhood and teens, she was exposed to discipline, arts, and sports that would let her develop her spirit and realize the power of the mind. Raised near the International Airport in Guadalajara, she saw a lot of air traffic and was curious how these aircraft stay aloft. Six months before coming to the United States, her family supported her to get her private pilot's license. Later, she graduated with a BS in aerospace engineering from Wichita State University in December of 2014. She worked as a research engineer at the Computational Mechanics Laboratory of the National Institute for Aviation Research for three and a half years, three years as an experimental flight test engineer at Gulfstream Aerospace, and two years as a maneuver loads engineer also there at Gulfstream Aerospace. Adrienne has been flying since 2010, and besides her private pilot certificate, she paid for her instrument rating, commercial pilot certificate, flight instructor certificate, glider rating, and a bunch of aviation specialty courses, including tailwheel, aerobatics, and seaplanes. After almost 10 years working as an engineer, Adriana retired from the corporate world to start ORCA. She currently helps people obtain private and commercial pilot certificates, tailwheel endorsements, and supports many students through her remote online course. Adriana sits down with us to share her journey, and one of her interesting stories she will share is about her first cross-country flight and what she did to help plan for this journey. She also shared this story in a recent issue of Soaring Magazine. You can find that in the October issue of 2022. I know you're going to love hearing our chat with her and hopefully learn from it as well. After we talk with Adriana, please do stick around for some very important news about the podcast just before we sign off. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America, and they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. Adriana, welcome to Soaring the Sky. I'm so happy to have you share your story with us here on the podcast. How are you? Hello, Chuck. I can't complain. 
I am very excited to be here at the podcast, uh, one that I had been listening for years, and I quite never thought I was going to be one of your guests. So hello. Um, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Very cool to, to hear that you've been listening. You know, I was looking through the October issue of Soaring Magazine. That's actually how we started chatting. Um, I came across your super interesting story about the first time you ventured out to try cross-country soaring. We definitely want to hear more about that. But first, if we could go back a bit and tell us how you got the aviation bug that brought you to this point. Well, that's like the story of my life. Uh, the onset of of the aviation bug was was very very subtle until it eventually just exploded on on fire and i think the seed was planted because i grew up near the international airport of guadalajara and if you can imagine looking from the ridge to a city and able to see the airport in the distance and all the airliners coming in whenever they they were using one of the runways and i was very fortunate to be one of those kids that grew up playing with neighbors and just running around doing sports just finding trails, being able to be outside, I was always able to look up to the sky. And so I noticed planes. And I always wondered, well, how these airplanes can fly? And I was a kid and I I did not entertain that thought. I would just play, but... Uh, there was a point in time when Google was already a good search engine. And one day I was sitting there and I typed, well, how airplanes fly? And a few blogs on basic aerodynamics popped up. And as I was reading about, I think I was reading an article about Bernoulli and explaining um, how a leaf was created. I don't, I don't think it was accurate, but it didn't matter. I was excited. I, I still remember feeling tons of butterflies in my stomach as I was reading. And as geeky as it sounds, I was excited about these, and I just felt like overflowing excitement. Um, I don't think I, I. I have any other memory where, uh, where I remember myself feeling that excited. So one thing took me to the next and I kept developing that curiosity and nourishing that curiosity by learning and reading. And at some point, a friend of mine gave me a book by Richard Bach and some of you may know Richard Back wrote a book about um, some. He has a few books out there that are like Jonathan the Seagull. That's very popular. But there, there is a book uh, for pilots <laughs> that is maybe more not as popular. But I think the title is Gift of Wings. 
Well, it narrates the story of a man who just loves to fly for the sake of flying. And it's a very humble man who really lives the, the life of, of flying on a lot of general aviation, sport aviation. Well, I just resonated with, with him at every single level of myself, like at the molecular level at my age, I just knew that I wanted to have the experiences that he was narrating in his book, the type of stories he was sharing. Well, eventually I watched Top Gone and that sealed the deal. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no question. And I kept watching that movie several times. Uh, It actually helped me improve my English. Uh, But... That was enough, um, enough to just give me propulsion for 10 years. Well, about soaring, because we're, we're here to, to share about soaring. Well, I eventually found myself in front of a brick wall. And this brick wall, um, after 10 years, uh, was a career setback. And I was just very frustrated with some of the experiences I was going through in flight school as a student until one day I just decided to, um, I'm only going to fly with the good guys and just do whatever it takes to satisfy this need that I have for, for growth, to, um, to have the aviation experience that I want to have. I want to keep achieving things and I want to enjoy it just unwilling to keep my feet in a place that was dragging me back, I started traveling out of state and sometimes up to seven hours. I remember going all the way to Florida several times, but not too far from home. I always had Richland Airport, uh, 3J1. And there I had friends and... I, it was always that place where I could go and be around airplanes and, and feel safe. And while I lacked access to fly a power airplane, because that's all I had been doing this time, power airplanes, one Saturday, I noted the Low Country Storing Association had resumed operations. There was a pony taking off, and you can't miss a pony. You know, it's a very distinct noise. Uh, well, they they had been on hold for a few years. The airport was under construction, so the club was not operating, I think, for for at least one year. So that day I walked all the way through to the launch site. I think I crossed the wrong way without a radio. I, I just, I mean, I was just being careful, but I walked all the way to the pony and the gliders, and I met Fabri, and a few other members, and I joined the same day. It was just the right thing to do. And that day, I think the the bug came back to me. And from then on, soaring just kept kept revitalizing my aviation bug. And it's now to the point where it's now totally free. I don't think I will ever lose it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So you did power for quite some time until you ran into the soaring world? 
Yes, I, you know, I had the opportunity to fly with a friend at Sunflower Glider Port uh, when I was studying aerospace engineering uh, more than seven years ago. But I was so focused on, on pursuing a career as a professional test pilot that I thought what I needed to do was to focus on getting my commercial pilot certificate with multi-engine ratings and instrument ratings to be able to get a, a, a job as a professional pilot um, as soon as possible. So uh, unfortunately, I was so focused that I could not see how soaring could fit until later on in my life. And yeah, it, it was almost 10 years of just power before I, I went into soaring. I really missed out, but everything happens for a reason. Absolutely. Can you tell us more about the glider port that you're mostly flying out of now and the benefits of the area, what you like about it? Uh, sure. The Low Country Soaring Association is located at Richland, South Carolina, and it is known as a, the low country. We have a, an asphalt runway and an, a turf area adjacent to the runway. You can imagine a non-towered airport, very peaceful, where the hangar owners and tenants are either building airplanes, they have their tailwheel airplanes, vintage airplanes, some of them have ultralights and gliders as well. You have um, some independent flying instructors. So this airport really gives you a feel of community all around and, and a bit of sport aviation as we do soaring. There is a group of people that do aerobatics. It's a remarkable and fun airport. That operation used to have a pony, so just towing, but recently we got a winch. So, oh, nice. So now, we, yes, it's fun and it's always a, a hood to use the winch. So now we use the pony and the winch to launch and we, we alternate. We, we are using both on a regular basis. That gives us really a good variety nowadays. Yeah, we got the winch with the objective to extend the life service of the pony because okay, yeah. With the well the pony is very old and by using the winch we could keep that pony operating with the club for maybe twice the time. Yeah, absolutely. Reducing the use. Another reason we got the winch was for well Timing was right. We found it at the right price and we took the, the issues on us to fix it and to take it and figure it out. What kind of altitude are you getting off the winch easily, average? Average. Well, on average, I will say 1,000 feet above the ground will be an okay, okay. launch. Anything below that is um, uh, maybe an N launch. But we have been able to launch all the way to 1,300 or 1,400 feet above the ground. Nice. And those are the good ones. 
Oh, yeah. We have currently have a, a super planic that we use for training and a PW5 for those who okay. are ready to pursue their silver badge or want to further their soaring education. But with those, I think we can satisfy the, the needs for our club. And the overall, the local landability is good. We have a lot of sod farms close to the field for local flying. And perhaps one of the best things and not so good things about this location is that mo most soaring days are weak and narrow and the thermals are less frequent. You know, it's allowing us to work hard just to stay up. <laughs> yeah, and those right. are like the good days to, to train your thermaling skills. But as you, as you can probably imagine, we seldomly go cross-country because of that. So when the weather is good for cross-country soaring, you get all these, well, <laughs> the few cross-country pilots that we have, they just jump in and they want a tow. If they can leave their work, they do it. <laughs> right. Know? I mean, you just have to. <laughs> because yeah weather won't wait for you and you have to take it here in the low country that's right i mentioned it earlier in in our conversation here in the beginning but some of our listeners may not be familiar with the article that you wrote in there in soaring magazine but can you walk us through that flight and what you learned from it cross-country flying and it can be of course very intimidating and taking that first step is tough yes uh, well, there, I am glad that I wrote down all the, the lessons, like, you know, you may not want to do this next time or remember this right. next time you have to do that. But well, for, I think what, what made this flight successful was the, the prepar preparation. I had been preparing for this flight for the last for the last three days. So imagine you are expecting good soaring conditions and you tell yourself, I am going to attempt this cross-country flight this Saturday. Well, it was Wednesday or Thursday, I think it was Wednesday. And since then, like we declared the task we were going to attempt to go from Richland to an airport that is 50 just 50 kilometer north of Richland. That's just enough to do your silver distance. So that was the task. And, you know, I've been very lucky there. Um, a few of the cross-country pilots got together with me in Condor to simulate the weather that was expected and we flew a few cross-country flights in i still remember the first time that i flew it in condor was also perhaps my first flight in condor i i actually landed out and i attempted the task on the game several times on Thursday and Friday. And on Friday, I was finally able to to make it without landing out. 
and I did it twice. So that made me feel a little bit better about it. And I was also very concerned about landability because we have forest and route towards the north. And the that forest is just swamp. There is trees, rocks. You don't want to go there <laughs> if you don't have, yeah. <laughs> unless you have plenty of altitude. So I was very concerned about this. And I just had to feel at ease about going. So I, I took my old lost comp with me and I just do, I just did some low altitude flying, surveying all the areas, north, west, just close to the route and just being able to pick some landable areas and to know that there were specific fields where I could absolutely land on that just allowed me to to say yes you can go you'll be safe you even if you land out we'll try it um so that really broke the ice well i remember that day i only took care of myself on my glider i usually help uh the club but that day i was just in my in my own little world right. I, I had to take my time because i'm still slow getting my things together and the first launch was not successful. I, I couldn't connect to the lift. So I landed. And that was actually very embar- embarrassing because I made a huge mistake. I had connected my P system before the launch because I thought, well, I can just, I'm just going cross country, right? So I, I need to be set. Everything needs to be perfect, set. And so that way I don't have to think about it. Well, I had to get off the runway quickly. And as I was, this was my first time using this system. So I could not disconnect. And so the launch crew arrives and they showed up. And I just kept trying to hide my plastic bag, you know. <laughs> I'm just glad that it was empty. (laughs) But yeah, that was my first lesson. You do not connect until you connect to the lift. But yeah, they were trying to be nice and they knew I was embarrassed. But yeah, they tried to look away, you know. Um, and so eventually they, they asked if I was ready for another launch. And I, I, I don't know if you have ever felt a sense of urgency, like you just have to go now. Well, I, I kind of felt that way. I was starting to feel that way, like I have to go now. So I jumped in the PW5 and this was a very good one, probably the best winch launch that we that we had at the time with the winch. The, we achieved an, an altitude of 1,350 feet above the ground. Oh, and cool. that gave me a lot of time to search. So my first goal was just climb as high as you can. Well, soon after I released, I you, you know, when you release from the winch or you release from a low toe, you are like in survival mode. You have all your senses hunting 
because you only have so much time before you compromise your pattern entry altitude. So you are really just looking everywhere and trying to find something. And very close to the launch zone, I think the, the runway was producing a thermal because it was over the airport. And so I was able to connect to it and and I started drifting with the wind as I was circling in, in the lift. I think in my mind, I still remember just do not circle, do not circle in sync, you know, twice. Just stay on right. the lift. You have to stay on the lift and climb because you're not going cross country unless you climb. So I was able to center that thermal quickly and... I think that thermal took me to 100 meters or 3,500 feet. I was able to climb all the way to 5,000 feet in my cell. That's like... Oh, nice. Yeah. With that thermal. And well, my decision altitude to continue was 4,000 feet. If I could pass 4,000 feet, I had plenty of altitude to continue cross country. That was just an altitude that we figured before the flight. I think in the soaring, well, in soaring article, I, I share my sectional map just to try to give you an idea of how I was experiencing this and how I felt about it. You can see circles noting the landable sites where I was planning to fly over and all these landable sites were to the west of the route so if you draw a, a direct line from point a to point b uh, my plan was taking a huge deviation just to be able to fly over landable terrain so once i hit my decision altitude of 4000 feet okay you can continue i thought well let's continue as planned we're going to fly over landable terrain. So there you go. The PW5 is going towards the landable terrain. Well, I couldn't find any lift. And this is when some anxiety started to kick in. Well, what if I can't find any lift? I'm landing in this sod farm now. This is perhaps my first time landing out. Oh no. I had lost, I think I lost 1,500 feet just going that way and that's when it kicked me and and I just knew I had to keep making decisions I could not just freeze because every second I was losing I was losing altitude I was losing options and time so in the distance I I remember seeing a very very look, good looking cloud the you know the ones that look like dark and with a flat bottom and very like a cumulus is just perfect like juicy <laughs> but um the problem was that it was over the forest like this unlandable area that i was trying to avoid but i was still at 3500 feet and i knew i could well, at least I had altitude to explore that option and be able to come back to land if it wouldn't work out. 
it just seemed like that was worth trying. So I flew towards such cloud and I was actually surprised that I was able to maintain altitude as I was approaching the cloud over the forest. I thought I was going to find sink, but no, I was able to maintain altitude. And, you know, I think I didn't know at that time that well, but now that I look at the flight, I think I was flying along a lift line because the wind was very strong from the south that day. And the rest of the flight, I flew a lot of lift lines. So that was probably what it was. So as I approached the cloud without losing too much altitude, I was able to connect to its thermal and make a, made a few circles and there was another lift line. And this lift was robust. It was becoming stronger and wider. You just knew you were not going to fall from it. It was solid. And this lift just took me all the way to 6,000 feet. And that was, that was the altitude that gave me the silver. And the best part was that all this time I was drifting on course because I had a tailwind. So I was gaining altitude while I was moving. That was ideal. And I still remember, um, I don't think I realized how much I was drifting because I was, my main main priority was gain as much altitude while you stay over, uh, while you stay en route to be able to continue. And it really struck me when at some point while I was circling, I remember just looking at Richland Airport, just, it was just getting smaller and smaller. And, and at one point I just knew it was never that small before. And (laughs) this is, I, uh, and this is when I knew that I, I was well past the point of no return. I was gone. I, I had left the nest probably a while ago because I was high. I had already, uh, I was already a third of the route moving in the right direction. So I was continuing. And at that time, I, I faced a, a dilemma. Once you hit your top altitude, I think I was at cloud base, a little bit lower than that. I thought, well, should I continue in the air I am? I mean, it seems to be like I'm not losing any altitude. Maybe I should continue in this direction. And then eventually I will have to, to move to my turn point. So I had that option. Or I had the option to to sag, to turn directly to to a fire that was ahead of me. Well, I think I got greedy because I decided <laughs> to go towards the fire, right? Well, I was at 6,000 feet. That was not necessary. But I, I sagged towards the fire. And I did not gain anything from that move. Well, I, did, I was able to find the thermal. But the thermal was just like, eh, it was not strong. Well, such deviation actually costed me a few hundred feet. And the worst part is 
that after passing that fire, everything shut down. I had made that turn without thinking about what was ahead. And at this time, I was just thinking about thermals, centering, and root progress. But I did not, I lacked the experience to include topography into my analysis. Well, it happened that such sack took me over a swamp. And here is when I learned that conditions can change fast. So I went from being confident and at ease to survival mode in a few minutes because I lost about 200, no, 2,000 feet in a hurry. Well, the, the word, well, I guess one of my mistakes was to remain along that area instead of getting away from the sink right away. I, I waited too long to seek or to go back to better conditions or just to get away from that dry bed, try another piece of air. I think it was my optimism. I thought, well, if sink is strong, I will find lift. You just have to wait for it, wait for it. <laughs> <laughs> But no, it was just sink. And eventually thought, okay, I have had enough. I, I just, I think I am in a delusion. This is, it was actually a sinkhole. Like there is no lift after this. Looking at the flight now, I think more experienced pilots will anticipate sink over that swamp. And before they make a deviation, they will probably consider whether the deviation will to that thermal is worth. They probably consider whether they can gain altitude by making that deviation to make it worth. So I certainly lacked some considerations when I, when I made that deviation. But when you see a steady sink over a thousand feet per minute and it's not going away, you just run towards your landing area. And that's, that's where my mind, my mind was. Um, I was in survival mode, just running towards all the farm areas that I had noted in my sectional chart. I was just running away so that I had a chance to pick a good field and land. And the good news was, you know, the the luck factor of your, when you are, maybe when you don't have that much experience, they sometimes say you have a, a bucket, a bucket full of luck and a bucket empty of experience. Well, maybe, maybe right. I got a little bit of my luck that flight because as soon as I flew over that benign terrain, I was able to climb back up and glide towards Broxton Bridge. That was a, that was a declared airport uh, with plenty of reserve. So that's, uh, that was a victorious thermal because I had made the distance. I had flown 50 kilometers from home. Now I just had yes. to come back or that was the goal. <laughs> yeah to come back to 3J1, if I could, 
If not, I was going to land somewhere. Um, so the, I think the, I was not very confident about my navigation gadget that I was using because I was recently new using that. I just had a few months of experience with it. And so I, I decided to fly longer into the turn point just in case. You know, you don't want to miss your declared your declare airport by a kilometer or so. Like, you want to make sure you get it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I flew in the wrong direction. Oh. <laughs> so the, instead of flying north, I flew east. And that took me again over the swamp. And that... Oh, no. Like as as little as the leg looks like in the flight, I lost so much altitude. I think I lost a thousand feet in just a few hundred feet of flying into the sink and I and turning in very very bad area or bad air. Um, I lost a hundred a thousand feet by doing that, and I think after that. I quickly thought, well, we need to, again, get out of this and just go back to my landable area. I remember looking at my navigator and seeing that I was within glide to an airport. And while I was computing my new route, well, now looking at the log, it shows that I was maintaining altitude while I was making that decision. Uh, maybe I was about to find something, but I did not have the mind space to process that maybe I was now flying in good air. Whatever it was, I had I had already made my decision. I was going towards the landable area. And so I just flew direct to this airport. And I thought, well, soaring should improve as I move towards this airport. I'm getting closer to the Perry area, the area where soaring is better. Um, I should find something. But I, I was not quick to find anything until I got very close to the airport. And uh, I guess the lesson here was that if you have lift lines and the wind is strong, you may want to sag perpendicular to the wind and get to the next lift line sooner. I think I was just flying all the time parallel to what it could have been a good lift line. So who knows, maybe there was nothing there, but maybe going perpendicular at least gives you a chance to jump on the next lift line if there is one. Uh, but anyways, I was able to get to this airport I got there at 1,500 feet, which is just your just the entry pattern or arrival altitude that you want. You don't want to get there any lower than that. Right. So it worked out. And I got distracted. There was a thermal and it seemed okay, but I lost it. I just got distracted and, and I lost it. I think maybe it was... Maybe I still have to, my stamina is now better. I um, I have more endurance, but you have to stay disciplined. You know, when you are soaring, 
nothing else deserves your attention. You have to stay disciplined. And that really kicked me when, when I lost it. So I, you know, I, I will never forget that. And the wind seemed to be picking up. Looking at the flight, I can't see those last thermals required one to elongate the circles. So you have to make your circles longer to stay on the lift. But I really had a hard time staying in lift at the end of the day. And I was not confident on the reliability of my climb performance. I, I just needed a good barrio. And after that flight, actually, I, I went ahead and I bought a, an LX barrio because I just did not feel I had the reliability of a barrio. But that's um, another story. But I think at some point, I just couldn't climb back up. And I remember looking at the windsock at Hampton County and it was full up. Probably the wind was at least 15 knots and probably higher aloft. So I decided to just abandon the task and just land there. So I guess from this flight, I learned about flying with lift lines. And maybe next time I will stay on lift or on the lift line until you know you identify where to go and be more critical as of whether you really need to deviate or not and also minimize time in sync get to the next leaf line as soon as possible by turning perpendicular to the wind maybe that's not right i still have a lot to lots to learn uh, but certainly i need to consider topography and lift triggers and there is just so much to think about that you know uh, that i there's so much to learn about just nature and soaring. That's why I love it. Or I keep increasing my my interest. But yeah, for example, if you see a cloud over the forest, but the trigger of that thermal is way far upwind, but you may never you may not be able to connect to it. So while you may see a cloud that looks great. If you're not thinking about the origin of the thermal, you may not make a good decision like like when I decided to deviate. But, you know, those are the experiences that just teach you a lot. At least I got a few good lessons under my belt. <laughs> and I was in one piece when I landed. Yeah, that's right. We can all learn a lot from that flight. Thank you for sharing that with us. You know, there's something else you have a lot of passion for, and I wanted to ask you about it, and that is your platform, Orca. Can you please tell us what that is and what your mission is? Yes. I know a lot of you may be thinking about a whale now. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but Orca is, is a place to connect those who have something to teach with those who who have the desire to learn and just pursue new flight experiences. Um, Orca is, I'm really trying to release that platform next year. One will be able to craft, publish and well, sell and manage 
aviation classes as an instructor, whether you are a certified pilot, or, um, cert sorry, a certified flight instructor or, or not, if you are just an educator or a coach, well, Orca has a, the vision to promote and empower genuine educators. And also at Orca, students will have a trustworthy source where they can find a variety of aviation specialty courses or classes that they can book and even check their, their progress. But um, Orca is not a platform, it's not a commercial platform. So it's not for everybody. It's for those who have a, a certain kind of energy. And it is a kind of energy that we are very familiar with in the soaring community. And that's why we picked the name Orca. It describes that very well. Uh, Orca is a Swedish word, and it means to have the energy to do something. So Orca is that, that bug in us that is, is pushing us to keep learning. And as a flight instructor or an educator, Orca is that vocation to teach. If you're a student, Orca is that vocation to become the best pilot you can be. I went through a lot of frustration during my aviation journey. Like most of my instructors were just sitting on the right seat, stealing my money. I was not the ordinary student. I wanted the best training and, and I had ability. I think a lot of us in the soaring community are like-minded people, but it took me almost 10 years to connect to such kind of people and training. And for those new to aviation, like I was, especially if you lack an aviation family like me, well, you simply don't know. And you are at risk of falling in wrong hands and wasting time and money. And meanwhile, you're really missing out to meet and work with awesome people. You know, sometimes it still surprises me when local pilots that have been pilots for many years don't know who Rich Stowell is. Uh, well, he's a very important aviation educator. You know, a lot of independent flight instructors and their amazing work is not, it's not being discovered. And I want Orca to change that. I want to make that place to link both parts. I mean, I think both sides have that bug, that burning desire for aviation. And Orca has a mission to help them find each other, find the work of these genuine educators, aviation educators, and give them the opportunity to, give people the opportunity to connect with them Sounds like some good stuff, and it's going to bring a lot of good people together, like-minded people together, and it should just grow. I hope so. I hope it becomes, you know, I see it as, as an entity that it stands on its own, um, not something that I want to control. 
I hope it will evolve in all that it's meant to become. Um, but yeah, that's the concept. Yeah, the vision of Orca. So it's not a whale. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a good vision and and some really cool stuff. I think it could really get a lot of people involved and become a great platform. Yeah, you have to make the good people discoverable. Yep, absolutely. Adriana, we always like to give people a chance to give a shout out, of course, to those that have been instrumental in their aviation journey. So this is a time you can do that if you would like to. Absolutely. Um, especially this is a great time of the year to do that, I think, to just to give thanks. I would like to recognize Jim Lee. I'll see um, he wrote the the artistry of the great flyer and he was a, one of the few first flying structures that was everything I I was looking up from a flying structure. I had a blast working with or taking all of his courses in Florida. And he, he uplifted me tremendously with his work and inspired me to find more people like him. And I think his influence did... Uh, empower me to become an independent flight instructor and to start Orca. And he told me, you know, you if you want a good life, <laughs> keep being an engineer. But I think he inspired me way beyond what he thought. And I went on to become an independent flight instructor like him. And I hope I, I'll be as good as him one day. Well, Scotty Hammond and Wally Moran, who trained me to fly gliders and giving me many, many of the finest aviation experiences I ever had. They allow me to advance quickly in soaring. Fabri Di Stefano for uplifting me like tremendously with his soaring virus. I have this, so if I have the soaring virus and if I am pursuing cross country and thinking about competition is mainly because of him and his enthusiasm and, and passion. It's very, very contagious. And John Sumner, who is also a cross country pilot at our club, he will always analyze my flights, even in Condor, and share his cr cross country experience with me. And this year I went on to travel and to grow. And I found that, well, Fabri, John, but also uh, Rich Owen, Juan Mandelbaum, Sarah Arnold and Carl Stredick, they taught me many lessons about soaring, cross country and racing this year. And of course my parents, who always supported me to succeed, um, despite they they are not fans of flying. And they always ask, when am I going to quit flying? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, but they have always supported me and they, they, are, they are just amazing. I'm going to give them the link so they can listen. Well, if you are up for it, this is the time that we usually do our soaring lightning round. So well, what do you let's think? do it. All right. So I'm going to ask you a question and you can give me a quick response. 
And if you, you always have that option to pass on a question if you like. So here we go. If you could only pick just one, what glider port or region would be at the top of your bucket list of places to go soaring and why? West, because of the beauty. Nice. Absolutely. What's the highest altitude you've ever been in a glider and where was it? 6,000, the silver flight over the low country. Nice. If you could fly your glider at only one bank angle other than level, what would it be? 45 degrees. What's your favorite type of lift? Thermal. Money, no object, and you could only spend it on a glider. What dream glider would you buy and what do you like about it? The DG1000 and its light responsive flight controls. Okay, your favorite glider port accommodations, tent, RV, hangar, or local motel? Mm, RV. What and where was your lowest or most memorable save from a land out? Mm, uh, this silver flight over close to my turn point that saved the task. Nice. Adriana, thank you for hanging out with me tonight here on the podcast. Always great to hear stories and things that people have experienced and your cross-country flight was uh, was a really cool story i really enjoyed hearing that i know the listeners are going to enjoy that too the pleasure is mine chuck anytime yeah thank you for putting this podcast together i really enjoy listening to all the storytelling it's almost as as good as hanging out with everybody at the end of the day in the soaring club or in a, at a contest. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you all for listening or we would not be, uh, we wouldn't be doing this. This will be our final episode for 2022, but no worries. We are not going anywhere. We will be returning as soon as we ring in the new year and continue to bring you more great soaring content in 2023. And we may even have a few surprises for you. If you start to miss us, though, you can always check out those episodes you haven't had time to listen to yet. So from all of us here at Soaring the Sky, please make sure you have a very happy holiday and a very Merry Christmas. And as always, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, Contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.